Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 56, Going Under to Go Over, where we will be looking at Chapter 115 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Only Way Out is Through. As per usual, explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. After that, we will talk about a Fornemos, a thing that is consistently never listed in my thing that I read off because I don't remember my spiel. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Doll Books. And then also, spoilers, enough said. A word to our community, please be kind to yourselves and one another and the creators of the world that we love exploring. All right. We've just got one chapter this week. Chapter 115, Storm and Stone. What do you think that chapter heading means? So we start with a little bit of a discussion of the geology and geography of Hert. It is a land of stone that is shaped by storm. The constant descriptions of the ceaseless winds that are basically just carving these valleys out of the mountainside. This chapter has so many references to wind. And I wonder why it never occurs to Quoth to commune with the wind. What I'm seeing here is Quoth is really locked in and hyper-focused on a lot of things. And that happens sometimes, especially when you're in crisis mode. You kind of lock down and focus on the things that you think are important. That's not always the things that are important. Yes, that's the crucial distinction. At the same time, though, we do start to see him kind of realizing that he's going to have to commit. The only way out is through. Right. He realizes there's not going to be an easy escape. To be fair, we named this without really, like we skimmed, but we didn't read. And we sure as heck didn't read like what, the second paragraph, <laughs> something like that. Because essentially he says, I realized that the only way out was through. You know, he's not wrong. And once he's kind of committed to that, though, we start to see him observing the world around him. He's looking beyond his preconceptions. When he first got to Hert, he was like, well, this place is kind of shabby. It's plain. They're like, I, I don't see any big houses. Everyone lives in these small cottages. It's a bit of a backwater. Yeah. I mean, it's small, but on closer inspection, he realizes that one, Everybody there is heating their homes with cast iron stoves. I do want to actually mention something because I'm more active on Reddit, at least reading it now. There was a theory that I saw recently that said something to the effect of, are the ADEM related in any way to the Fae? And I think we just disproved that idea because they have iron in their homes. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Quoth also observes that even though the Adem homes are small, they're extremely well-constructed. And well-appointed. Exactly. They're understated. These are not people who 
are just barely subsisting. They have plenty, they just don't flaunt it. And this leads to a conversation with Vachette where she explains how the Adem came to live in Edemre beyond the storm wall. So it's a very high level story, obviously, but we learn that the Adem were driven from their original home by some unknown force, whether it was war or famine or invasion, nobody really remembers. Or just other people. Yeah. Whatever the case may be, they could not find a new place to live because everywhere they stopped, people kicked them out. Whether it was neighbors or people already living there, they could not find a new home until they came beyond the storm wall where nobody wanted to live there, so they did. And when the ADEM arrived, they found that all they had was winds and fury. And the wind was not exactly something they could monetize. So they sold their fury as mercenaries. This explains how they're able to provide for themselves and their families and their community. It's definitely Foth actually starting to see as opposed to just make assumptions. We will learn later how much of their earnings the Adem are socially expected to share. And because of the way that their society is, how that's not a hardship on them. And there are some parallels to be brought toward real life economies, real life social systems, you know, commentary on universal health care. It's a very communally minded ethos. And it's one that is not all about individual enrichment. It's about individual excellence contributing to communal thriving. To the greater good. The greater good. So yeah, I was really fascinated by that description of how geology informs geography, informs economy. And also architecture. Exactly. After Vichette has told this story, Quoth tries to empathize with that story by telling things about his own culture. My people are wanderers too. It's our way. Nowhere and everywhere is where we live. And Vachette is quick to remind him that this was a story and that stories aren't necessarily the whole truth. He says, I'm fond of stories. And she says, a story is like a nut. A fool will swallow it whole and choke. A fool will throw it away, thinking it of little worth. But a wise woman finds a way to crack the shell and eat the meat inside. Meaning a wise person, someone who is thinking critically, is able to take the actual meat of the story and find the truth and not just the fluff around it. It's sort of like how when you reach a certain age, you start thinking, well, fairy tales are for kids. None of that's real. So I'm not going to pay any attention to any of those. Like when you're 14. Yeah. So you throw out anything that seems like it has magic or anything that seems like it's fantastical. Clearly, none of that is of any value. So I'm not going to pay any attention to this. Never mind any of the actual valuable lessons to be found within that story. And I'm going to say this. I didn't do that. I completely leaned into my love of fantasy. Yeah, for me, it was science fiction. But <laughs> same idea where it was like, man, it would be really cool if all that sci-fi and fantasy stuff was real. That would be awesome. But I think that there are people that succumb to society's not whim, but like pressure. 
And I'm not going to lie, we did that a little bit with Pokemon, which is how we completely missed the phenomenon that is Pokemon. And neither of us has nostalgia for it. We were at an age that it wasn't cool when it came out. And so we completely missed it. But I think there's also the flip side of fun wisdom involved here too. The person who takes the story, swallows it whole, who doesn't think about it at all and just says everything in this is absolute fact. We see that a lot though in fandom culture. Oh yeah. And it could be a fan of a story, of a IP, of a brand. You build up this idea that the thing you love can do no wrong. That the thing that you love is 100% true. That all of the things in it have to be taken as 100% literal factual truth. Like, let's be real here. I bought a custom guitar recently from a company that is mildly divisive, to put it nicely. You go online and you see either people absolutely hating on them and you see people who are going to defend them with their lives that believe that the owner can do no wrong and it's somewhere in the middle and if you actually pay attention to what the owner himself has said he's like i fully admit that our customer service was trash when i was doing any of it we have gotten better we have done our best we have changed we have tried we're not perfect and i think that that's a decently realistic way of looking at it. I also think that he blows smoke up people's butts because like when he's doing his salesman shtick, he has a lot of those, I know how to manipulate people into paying a ton of money for this thing by making them think they're getting a great value. And you can see it, like if you're looking at it through normal lenses, but there are people who either choose their lens color to be brown or pink. And it's actually kind of funny to watch the discourse. Yeah, the internet has not made us better people. <laughs> Fully agree. But in this particular case, Kvothe believes all of the stories. He just takes things at face value. He believes and doesn't interrogate anything. We can see that in how he took Scarpy's story of Lanray. Mind you, he was 12. He was 12 and he swallowed it hook, line and sinker. He might have been somewhere upward of 15. I don't know, but he was also stunted at 12. But I mean, that's that flip side, that uncritical swallowing of the story without really understanding the importance behind it, what that human truth really is. No interrogation, no thoughtfulness, no consideration for what's actually important about the story. Oftentimes the importance of stories is not in the true and factual narrative but rather what those narratives tell us about relationships in general, about humans. They're not meant to be taken literally. Yeah. He then says something that I think is a little bit gross. I'm glad Shayan gave me to you. And Vachette is just like, you're a foolish boy. Come on, let's go. The fight's about to start. No transition, we now have a fight. Except instead of what I think both might have been expecting and what we as an audience may have been expecting, this is more like a martial arts meet. Yeah, it kind of feels like the All Valley Karate Championships from Karate Kid. Yeah, except it's not meant to be climactic. No, it's just sort of a chance for students to test themselves against one another and show off what they've learned. And it's a place for the adults to test themselves because they are all lifelong learners. 
you know, whether you are someone who's young and up and coming, who has just gotten your first set of reds, or you're an experienced teacher like Bichette, all the way up to Shane. All of them have something to learn, something to prove, something to test themselves against. There's a number of fights that go on throughout this. It's also a spectator sport. There's at least 30 people that have gathered to watch. This is one of the first times that isn't a mealtime that both is around a crowd of people, if you can call 30 people a crowd. It's like a classroom worth. And he says, I wondered how I could ever have thought of these people as restless or fidgety. There is something to be said for immersion. There is something to be said for essentially frog boiling because we always use that term derogatorily or to mean something bad or that you've been manipulated into accepting something that is not optimal or good. But little by little by little by little, where the changes are so incremental that you can't notice them, I don't know that that's always a bad thing. No, I would say this is incremental learning. You learn something relatively simple, and then you throw a small little wrinkle into it and then learn that. And then you just build on that going forward. And yeah, immersion is a lot of that. And, you know, Vachette has been a very good teacher for Kvothe because she understands him where he is and isn't trying to struggle to express herself. Kvothe asks, how much money does a mercenary send back to the school? And her answer is 80% of their earnings. And Quoth, confused, goes 8%? And she's like, no, I did not misspeak. You did not mishear. 80. 8, 0, 80. And some give more. Happily give more. It's a point of pride, in fact. And she makes it sort of like this. Well, what do you think we're doing out there in the world? Do you think we're living this life of luxury while everyone back home starves? No, of course not. They have a strong sense of civic pride, of civic duty. They understand clearly that they have been fed, sheltered, provided for, and that the amount of individual need that is not covered by socialized funding isn't very much. Like, sure, I don't want to pay my taxes into, oh, what, something that I find frivolous that I wouldn't do. <laughs> Because, let's be clear here, I find a lot of things frivolous that I would do. Uh, I don't know. Collect postage stamps. First thing that kind of popped into my head. I don't want to pay for my neighbor down the street's postage stamp collection. Like, that's not a thing that I want to directly pay for or fund. But I will gladly pay for my neighbor down the street to have shelter and food and health care. I will gladly pay my taxes towards that kind of social program. But the amount that I need myself to squirrel away does kind of depend on how much social programs help with other things like, you know, shelter and medicine and all that other stuff. If you're in a economy that has prioritized social programs, individual need is less. Yeah, the schools are the lifeblood of that community. So anything that they don't use for the feeding, sheltering, and clothing and tuition of their students goes back into the community at large. That's why all of the homes, though small, are quite well built and well appointed. And this is sort of where Kvoth starts to recognize just why some of the ADEM view him with such suspicion. Right, because as 
Vachette points out, you have stolen the key to this entire town's survival. It makes Quoth realize why Carceret is so angry, why everyone looks at him with suspicion, bordering on hatred. Because if anyone can have these secrets, then the secrets are not valuable. Yeah, because theoretically, Quoth could devalue the services that Ada mercenaries provide. By teaching it to others. And he could also offer those services at a lower price and drive down what people are willing to pay for it. As the fight starts, our first combatants are two young men that Vachette describes as fighting like puppies, impulsive, non-thinking. This is still a little sexist, not in the way that we normally see sexism, but like it's ridiculous that even in this culture and what is essentially not the culture that we are currently in, like as the audience, there is a attribution of certain traits towards people of certain genders. It's not patriarchal, but it is hierarchical. And it just happens that this particular culture says women are better fighters than men. The reasoning, though, is broad and stereotyping. Like, women don't get as angry and they're not as impulsive about getting into fights. I don't know if I believe that. I really can't speak towards that, but... I don't like that. Because I think that it doesn't matter what your gender is. You can be trained to have a certain mindset towards fighting. I think a lot of the associations for how men do things versus how women do things have as much to do with the power dynamics that are set up culturally. And those are cultural constructs, not biological fact by any stretch of the imagination. Agreed. It's a very essentialist view, which I think is a fairly narrow take on things. But we also get that bit where Quoth is about to say, well, but actually, and then he remembers, oh, yeah, Day Dad exists. He goes and starts off with men are bigger and stronger. And Fachette looks at him and goes, are you bigger or stronger than I am? No, but in general, and it's the same kind of deal with a lot of people that compare themselves to great artists or even good artists like I got it a lot from the design students at my college where I had a degree already in graphic design and I have been a decent artist for a lot of my adult life so I have practice and I have experience and I have had education in creating art but people who haven't or have had like a class compare themselves to me and go oh but I'm so awful and I'm like no, that's not the deal here. You're not awful. You're inexperienced. Same thing goes, though, for learning pretty much any craft. Quoth isn't an awful fighter. He is an inexperienced fighter. And that's the same for these two kids who are fighting. They are inexperienced. And you know, he's able to see that as soon as they actually start really getting into it, a lot of their form gets a little sloppy. They start making mistakes. They start giving in to impulse. It's really easy to practice a skill sort of in a vacuum. And then when you are out of the, okay, this is a drill, and into actually doing it in real life, it's harder. Your adrenaline kicks up, and sometimes you second guess yourself, or you just start getting reactive, and you don't make the right decisions, or you just stop following your training. Like your training is there so that you can do it without having to think. Until your training becomes second nature, it's really hard for that instinct to be overridden. Yeah. 
So after the boys fight, a man in red approaches Vachette and invites her to fight him. She declines. And is not really terribly impressed with him. And Kolos like, well, what was that all about? Her response is, he didn't actually want to fight me. He just wanted to be seen asking me to fight. Because there is a complex set of expectations around testing yourself against the best, even if you don't necessarily want to. Even if you know that that wouldn't result in anything good. We have another fight in this particular instance. There's no winner because one of them struck their opponent through the lung or would have if it weren't practice swords. And the other would have struck through the gut. And so the person that had the lung injury would have died quicker and the other would have died slower. And both is like, so the one who died slower is the winner? No. They both lost. I think throughout all of this, the question of who wins a fight is something that Kvothe has to kind of reckon with. It's a weird notion, the idea of someone winning a fight. And I think what Vachette is trying to teach him is that in a fight, anyone who survives has won. Sometimes the only way to win in that situation may be to just not have a fight. That may not be the right approach. And that's really what the Lathani is about. It's about how to translate your goals into actions. Sometimes that may come down to physical combat, but it won't always. And in fact, often it won't. And so you have to know when not to have that fight. Eventually we get to Shane's fight, which is the thing that everybody's been waiting for. And the fight goes, impulsive young girl tries to hit patient old grandmother who just slips out of the way frustratingly because she is able to see these attacks coming and make the most economical movement ever. But that doesn't work forever. The fight between Shan and Pentha is actually really useful. I would say that Pentha, it's not so much that she's impatient. The way I looked at it is she is relentless. So she is strategic in everything that she is doing, but she knows that by taking the initiative, she can force Shan to continue having to defend and eventually slip up. And then Pentha will be primed to take advantage of that mistake. To be clear, both of these people are at the top of their game. So Pentha is a legitimately amazing fighter. Like there is zero shade against her. She is young, she is athletic, she is acrobatic, she is smart, and she's doing all of these things, just continually testing Shane's defenses. I have to say, I appreciate your description much, much more, much, much, much more than the description of her in the book. So I looked at this like a soccer match. Shan's approach is one that is based on where her body is. You mean in terms of age? Like the physical condition of her body. She is not as athletic as she was in her youth because nobody is. She is not as quick nor as strong as she used to be, but she knows how to be patient. She knows how to anticipate and she knows how to read her opponent very well. So Shan is working with what she has, which is to say she's got all of this experience. She can still be a formidable fighter in her own right. She knows how to read her opponent very well. Pentha is young and has the advantage of a strong body, quick reflexes, and she's also pretty sharp. She's able to spot openings and take advantage of them. What she's doing here is she's probing and looking to see where those advantages are. She's playing a very aggressive 
match, knowing that she can force Shan to react, and sooner or later there will be a mistake. And when there is a mistake, she pounces. Machette said admiringly, she is a fury, is she not? Like, this is a case of two people with evenly matched styles. And there is an advantage to being in the offensive position, especially if you have conditioning to maintain it, and you have the discipline to keep your guard up. So, yeah, even as Pentha is making all of these fantastic moves, she's keeping her defenses up. She's not letting in anything either, partly because she is attacking rapidly. She's just not giving Shan an opening. I mean, you'll see this when, like, if you look at Jurgen Klopp's old Dortmund teams, they were just relentless. They would take advantage of superior conditioning and just run the other team ragged, continually attacking and attacking and attacking and then attacking some more so that the other team didn't have a chance to catch their breath. They didn't have a chance to try and put anything together because the moment they got the ball, it would be captured and repossessed. And then next thing you know, there were a bunch of guys in yellow running towards the other goal. What you'd see in those scenarios is if you're on the wrong side of one of those matches, most of your possession would be picking the ball out of your own net. And that's how Penth is playing here. It is relentless. It is just coming in waves and it is fast. It is fluid. And because it's coming from all these different angles, Shan is having to react a lot. And every time that Shan has to react, there's an opportunity for her to make a mistake. Shane is playing a more defensive conservative game, not inherently bad. <laughs> it's one that she knows that she is also waiting for her opponent to make a mistake. Or to tire themselves out. And then she can strike. In this case, she's the first one to make a mistake. So the thing that I took from all of this that I really appreciated was that Foth is like, so is now Penta the leader of the school? And the chat's like, no, of course not. That'd be a crazy system. Mutiny! What do you think this is? Sometimes people lose. It's just a fact. Shane's old. Pentha's not. Right. Pentha fought better on the day. But that doesn't mean that Shane loses possession of the school. Because first and foremost, Shane is a good teacher. And also it's not really a possession. Yeah. Shan is the master of the school because Shan, more so than being a great fighter, though she is that, she is a great teacher. She is smart. She is wise. She's good at solving difficult problems where the right solution may not be readily available. I mean, Fachette gestures at Kvothe over this. You're an example. You're being here, being taught, being grudgingly accepted is an example of the way that Shane leads. Yeah, she's found a tough problem. And so, again, she basically also is taking that only way out is through approach. She doesn't try and run away from the problem or try and just avoid the problem. She says, okay, well, we have this weird barbarian kid in our midst. He knows too much for his own good. He knows just enough to be dangerous, not enough to get himself out of trouble. If we just kill him or whatever, I can't let that be on my own conscience. That would not be of Lathani. I know that this also poses significant risk to Tempe, who we care about, who's one of our own. And this is a tough situation. This is a tough, tough thing that we're going to have to actually deal with. So, well, we're already down this path. We can't back out of it. There's no do-overs or undos. 
Can't just control Z ourselves out of it. We're going to go through with this. We're going to train this kid all the way. At the end of her fight, the first people that she comes to speak to are Vichette and Quoth. And she looks at Quoth and says, at the end, why was I struck? And I think Quoth is still trying to flatter her by saying, with his hand, respectful uncertainty. But then did answer, you misplaced your heel slightly, your left heel. And Shayan nods and says, good, pleased approval. In a crowd of people who, while not very vociferous, are also still going to gossip. It's a rough crowd. Why do you mean it's a rough crowd? Oh, it's like playing for a hostile audience. Ah, that makes more <laughs> sense. Both she and Vachette are trying to manipulate the feelings and thoughts toward Quoth from the entire town. Quoth says something kind of silly and I like her hat. <laughs> and Vachette is just like, uh, let's leave before you say something stupid. Er. One of the themes is quit while you're ahead. Yes. And there is actually something that comes up in a second that I have had to say to you a few times. I caught that. <laughs> the next scene is in the mess hall. Quoth is still under the impression that absolutely nobody wants to be anywhere near him nor to be seen anywhere near him. So he makes himself as small as possible and as far away from the food as possible so that anywhere that is desirable to sit is nowhere near him. And that sentence just hurts to read. I'm sure all of us have been in those positions where we think that nobody likes us. And it's not a truth. It is a story that we have told ourselves and swallowed whole. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Kvothe, even as he's learning more, I think he's also at the weird part of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like there's that period where you think that you know a lot, but you know nothing. Mm -hmm. And then you learn more and you learn just how much you don't know. And then you start to underestimate just how much you know. Like he's on that side of the curve at this point. And that's a tough place to be. He's so conscious of how much he doesn't fit in, of what an affront his very presence represents to the people there. And... Like at this point, he kind of feels like he deserves whatever abuse Carceret shows up to give him. To the point where he is expecting Carceret to saddle up beside him as she has done a few times every day for the past however long and expects to be bullied more. And to his surprise, the person who shows up to sit with him is Vachette. You'd think that if Vachette didn't like him, she would be done with him after their lessons. I think what we understand is that she does enjoy Kvothe's company as a student and she appreciates him and is giving him that mentorship that he's needed, you know, that he's really been craving. It's something he's been starved for really since Abanthi. You know, at the university, he's searching for a mentor constantly. He tries to have that be Elodin. He tries to have that be Kilvin. And I think that that's a better choice. I'm going to actually say something here. I think you're a little bit wrong about Kilvin. I think Kilvin wants to be his mentor. I don't think Kvothe wants Kilvin to be his mentor. That's fair. I think that might also be the same for the Chancellor. Yeah, I think you're right. But he definitely, definitely wants Elodin to mentor him. Yeah, he's just sitting here like, oh man, this guy knows storybook magic. He's so cool. It's a cool young teacher. I want him to be my mentor. Meanwhile, he's better at the two things that the other teachers do, partly because there are rules 
in both of the things like the artificing, there are rules. With language, there are rules. They might not always make sense because let's think about English for half a second, but there are rules. And with Elton, there are no rules. And Quoth, as much as he wants storybook magic, also really wants rules. No, I'd say he needs rules. He wants to live in a world where he doesn't have to respond to them. Okay, I conflated wants and needs. You're right. He needs rules. His personality type needs rules. Let's put it this way. So like if we were thinking about alignment charts, I, as much as I would like to be neutral, fall into lawful good in a way that isn't lawful stupid, but is very rigidly, if I have to follow the rules, so do you. You do love your high horse. Right. That being said, what happens is if I'm mad that somebody else isn't following rules, then I definitely have to follow the rules and be mad. To the point where you're mad about it and you have to follow the rules so you can stay mad about it. Well, I am kind of relaxing on one of those things. If our neighbors insist on having their music that kind of triggers me loud enough that I can hear it through the walls, which at that point has to be pretty uncomfortably loud, then I don't care if you have your music up loud enough to bleed through the walls. I won't ask you to not do that. I will ask you to start after seven in the morning because that is otherwise rude. But I also won't mind if occasionally I turn my music up so loud that it is what I consider to be kind of uncomfortably loud, but I want it that way anyway. Like when I listened to The Chain on Rumors because you left that record for me. Point being, Vachette is there for him as a mentor who actually is affectionate towards him, is kind towards him. Even as she's giving him structure, she's helping him to confront his weaknesses and at the same time giving him grace for it. That next little bit, though, Quoth says, it occurs to me that it would be nice to fight someone whose ability is somewhat closer to my own. You and I both know who his eventual opponent will be. Because we've read this before. It is the person who made the tiny little yellow hat <laughs> for Shane. And it's not to wound Quoth's pride. It is because he asked for someone whose skill level is like his. It would be like me saying, I want to converse with someone in Spanish whose skill level is around the same as mine and be paired with a three-year-old. Yeah, and there is some value in that. And Quoth makes his argument and she says, okay, I see your point. We'll do it. That being said, you have been able to strike me. And Quoth is like, but you let me. I didn't earn it. And she says, no, you earned it. If I let you do that, you earned it. He's like, that's not the point. They both have a point here. Like Quoth knows that, yes, technically he's, quote, earned it. But he wants to actually see how he does against someone who has his actual level of skill who isn't trying to make sure that he gets what he's earned. So we also have this point that I think was quite funny. I'm not anywhere near your level, but you yourself said that my K-Tan is remarkably good. And Vachette just immediately goes, I didn't say that. I said that your skill level in the K-Tan is remarkably good for how long you've been doing it, which is only two months, which is nothing, which means that you're not good. The bar is low, okay? It's the difference between relative and absolute risk, right? 
So if you're thinking about when you hear about how doing a certain activity will increase your risk by double, like it will double your risk of being injured, but your risk of being injured in that activity was 1%, now it's 2%. So that's your actual risk. You're not, oh my God, I'm doubling my risk right now. You're going, oh, I went from 1% to 2%. I increased it by 1%, not to 50%. One of these is a scare tactic. It's like saying 25% more pizza. Then what? <laughs> then you used to make? Are we going to measure? Are you saying versus your competitors? What do you mean? But then we've got the part that we were alluding to earlier. Quoth keeps trying to justify why he should be allowed to fight someone of his own skill level. And Vachette just looks at him and says, you've already won. Stop fighting. Yeah, you sometimes see that on internet arguments. You've already won. Stop fighting. You get that a lot from me actually telling you, you've already won. Stop fighting. You don't have to justify yourself anymore. You've already won. Stop. And it's not like we were fighting. It was more like you said, I would like to go play Baldur's Gate. And I said, I would like to play Mario Kart with you. And you were like, but I'm at this part in Baldur's Gate that is just, I really, really, really want to go play. And I say, okay. So the compromise is go play for as long as you'd like to, but afterward we're going to play Mario Kart as long as you agree to that. You say yes, and then you continue to justify why you should be able to go play Baldur's Gate. And I'm like, you've already won. Stop. Stop it. I think actually this hits another point in the Lothani. There is such a thing as doing too much. Once you've achieved your objectives, recognize that maybe it's time to move on. You don't need to keep fighting the same battle over and over again. You're wasting your energy. You're wasting the goodwill of the person that you're working with. It's maybe not delivering value anymore. So, yeah, it's a fun little chapter. I liked it. So I think that means that it's a good time to move on to our Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. It is your turn. It is indeed. So... I picked Vachette. Now, obviously, there is a case to be made for Shan, but Shan doesn't really have a whole lot of actual interaction this week, whereas I think Vachette is actually using Shan to describe practical wisdom. So, for one, she is giving Quoth space to ask questions and also helping him to deepen his understanding of this culture that he's found himself living in and helping him to understand the enormity of what's before him and why it's so serious, why they're taking it so serious. Because now he is understanding just what Tempe's decision actually meant and why everyone has been so hostile. Up to this point, he's kind of been like, well, it's the Adem and they're weird about this sort of thing. And I violated some sort of weird taboo that I didn't know about. And so now they hate me. I don't get it, but I'm here now. And I just got to do this thing to get out of it. Whereas Vachette helps him to see why that taboo exists and to see it from their perspective. And doing so in a pretty non-judgmental way. Like, she never accuses Quoth of setting out to steal or anything like that. It wasn't intentional, but it still is. Yeah, he ended up in this position where, oh, I inadvertently took some of the secrets that represent the lifeblood of this community. And they're worried that I will then disseminate these and cut off that lifeblood. 
oh, okay, so suddenly that response makes a lot more sense. It's not just the ADEM are weird like that. I do generally find that when I have an explanation as to why, I'm more able to accept the is. I agree. I think also she let Kvothe kind of get there in his own time. A lot of the things that she's explaining to him require a lot of context that he's been slowly building up over time during his time with them. And so she's given him that space. And as he started to ask questions, she's provided answers, but she's given him that space to actually really internalize it and to kind of think about it in their own terms to let the ADEM speak for themselves. The other thing is that she's able to speak Kvothe's language, not just a Turin, but stories. Because of his upbringing, Kvothe loves a good story. Like that is how he views the world. That's how he makes sense of things. So when Vachette presents this as a story, this is the story of how the Adam came to this place. This hits Kvothe right where he lives. It's how he processes the world. It's how he processes everything around him. And he's able to come to a better understanding of the Adem because of that story. And he's able to empathize with them. These people who historically spent a long time in the wilderness without a home of their own, where everywhere and nowhere is home. And then finding a place for themselves and carving something out of the rock in these really unique ways, that's something that he can respond to. I think what we might find out is that the Adem and the Adima Ru maybe share a common ancestor, that the Adem might be people of the Adima Ru who found a place for themselves and stopped wandering just because there seemed to be some little bits of kinship here and there. But also it may be that they splintered off under less amicable circumstances because we've got one culture who thrives on story and song and we have one culture who shuns it, at least publicly. One that lives in silence and one that lives in performance. At least in public performance-wise. I think she also challenges Quoth's preconceptions and in ways that aren't just like, look how wrong you are, but let's think about this. Why do you think? Who do you think won this? Who won that fight? That is a tactic that is used a lot so that people don't learn things by rote, but learn to think for themselves and think critically. If you give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish, I could give you all the answers and you won't learn anything. Or I could teach you how to get to the answers and you'll learn how to interrogate things on your own. I'd say that there's a real life thing happening right now for me where I want to know the building blocks and the theory and the reasons behind why music and guitar especially works the way it does. And I could just go get the tabs for literally all the songs that I want to play and never learn the fundamental how or why about how it works. Or I could pester the crap out of my teacher for like music theory every class, which is less fun, but more informative. And I think that you have to be in the right headspace to want that. I think that if someone tries to force that on you, you still won't learn. You won't learn it until you're ready to learn it. Mm -hmm. And so good professors give their students the space to get to that. And that's what your teacher is doing. Yeah. And I appreciate the heck out of that. 
I don't think that my teacher would force me to learn music theory, but if I ask about certain bits of it, he's happy to tell me. So yeah, I thought Bichette did a really good job this chapter in helping Quoth get to that place and then also giving him that bit of companionship at the end. Seeing that her student was feeling alone and alienated and isolated from the world around him and reminding him that, no, someone thinks he's pretty cool. Someone sees his value. Exactly. That he's good company to have around. And it can be difficult when you're in a new country or a new place and you don't feel welcome yet. So to have someone go out of their way to open up to you, that makes a huge difference. And I think she saw that. She saw that that's what Kvothe needed in that moment. And she gave that to him. So I thought that was some wisdom and kindness there that I think we could all learn from. I agree. So with that, it is your turn for thing of the week. All right. So my thing of the week, I'm not as knowledgeable as I wish I was. I need to actually spend a lot more time doing some research on the backstory of this. But the thing that I am recommending this week is called Lockstitch. It is a TTRPG being played amongst very many people in separate sessions, all being run by the same core GM. And this community was created by him and his partner, who is one of my very dear friends from college. And the two of them run the games. They do art for the games. And it's all on Twitch. So you can actually hear the games go on. It's this shared world with rotating cast. And it's all done with the Roll20 system running it. And the quest system is the backbone, is the game playing backbone. I play an otter person who is trying to break into true crime documentaries and following around Will's character who is in the process of solving a crime. Yeah, my character is an orc detective named Arthur Fortusks. He's basically a hard-boiled detective who dreams of being a cozy detective. You want to be Jessica Fletcher. Yeah, absolutely. We've played in one session so far. It hasn't come up on video on demand just yet. I think they're still working to iron out some audio kinks that plagued the first part of the session. Oh, gotcha. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. You can listen to us. Anything that has Vidra or Arthur Fortusks in it. That's uh, us. That'll be us. But I just highly recommend listening anyway, because they were able to pair us up with people who were really fun to play with that we'd never met ever. And I just really enjoyed being able to do just off the wall, unique game in a way that was like, it was very story driven and it felt great to play. And so I really do have to go and listen to as much of that as I possibly can at this point, because it was so much fun to play. I can't imagine it not being just amazing to listen to. All of the artwork is custom. So like we all have individual characters that are sort of semi-animated when our characters are speaking or reacting. It's a really good time. So yes, this isn't to plug us, but it is to plug our friends. So yay. Yeah, we'll put the link to the Twitch channel in the description. Absolutely. Also, if it's not showing up on your podcast app, I will have it available on Patreon. You don't have to pay anything to see the episodes on Patreon 
after the day they're released. So you can go and just find the description over there. I just have to remind myself to do that. And if I don't do that, please, please, for the love of everything, please remind me on Discord. So with that, it is now time for our seven words. I have the seven words from the book. So I had a couple choices. Some have rich soil and generous weather. The wealth of these places is obvious. The houses are large and well-mended. No creaking leather hinges on the doors. It gives you a place to sleep. It gives you your sword, your training. Then I have, suddenly Carceret's anger made much better sense. Then, at the end, why was I struck? And then the choice that I made was, but a leader is not a muscle. A reminder that the leader is not necessarily the person who wins every fight, but rather the person who uses their mind to make decisions. I thought that was really useful to remember. I agree. So you had the words from life. What'd you pick? Well, first, I want to see a few of these that I found that I think might even be better than some of the ones that you found. Oh, yeah? She is a fury, is she not? Pentha was full of passion and fury. She had removed her lopsided yellow hat. The key is knowing when to fight. I am fond of stories, I said. And nowhere and everywhere is where we live. But I like yours a lot. I think that that is a good reminder. I think that we can't expect the leader to be the one that is physically strongest. We have to follow people who are intelligent and thoughtful and caring about those around them as much or more than who they are. So I think that was a good choice. Thank you. So you have seven words from life. What did you pick? So right now we're kind of going through a weird space. We haven't publicly said where Will works. I'm not going to, but some of you may be able to ferret it out based on the little cryptic thing I'm going to say. We're in a position where we don't know if Will's job is secure. As someone who works in the tech industry where layoffs are running rampant, my company's next on the chopping block. And I'll find out here what happens in the next week or so. So we might know before this comes out, we might not, because it might also not be till May. And that puts us in a very uncomfy spot. I don't like it. Me neither. But my seven words this time around are, remember, the only way out is through. We cannot guess. They were unkind enough to say, we're just going to lay off 2% of our people in the next week or so. Not going to give you a hint as to whether or not it's you. And this is globally. Huh? Would you like to have an anxiety problem for the next week and a half? And I hate it. I really hate it. If I were them, if I were trying to be kind, which they are not, I would have said, we'll be doing this over the next week, but internally, secretly, not told to the press or whatever. Just do it on the Friday that they announced that this was going to happen anyway. Like, just actually take care of the problem quickly. Don't make literally every employee shirt sure. their pants. Yeah, it's a trying time. And yeah, the thing that I keep coming back to is that, one, I'm good at my job. So if I can do my job where I do it now, I can do it somewhere else. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. If I am staying in my current position, well, they're going to need me to help untangle the mess that will inevitably have been made by this. If I'm moving to a different position, well, I have a lot of really good general skills that I can find a way to apply. And all I can do is 
get myself prepared and stay positive and remember that one, I am not my job. Two, this has no bearing on how good I am at my job. I will be fine because I take care of the people around me. I value the people around me and I do my best to be a good friend and teammate. I can do that anywhere I go. And I'm never going to stop holding on to that value. So that's always going to be a thing. I've got a lot of things that I can contribute anywhere I go. And my job is always going to be the least important part of who I am. So yeah, it's a difficult time, but we'll get through it. We have to. It's the only way. <laughs> so yeah, I think you picked a good one. In my opinion, it's a really scary thing, but it is less scary now than it was when we were younger, when we had less of a security net. We will be okay. That's not what this is about, but it's still frustrating and painful and worrisome that there is a huge rain cloud over the entire company right now where no one knows if they will have a job in a week. I don't like that as a tactic and I think it's cruel. I think that it's uncalled for and I don't care that it's a large company. I think that this was the bad way to handle it. I don't think it's a good way to handle it. I also think that there are definitely worse ways to handle it. There are much worse ways to handle it, but at the same time, it just proves that they don't consider their employees people and don't consider them in their humanity. But I've said my piece. Companies aren't people, no matter what the U.S. government says. Yeah. Anyway, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 116 and 117 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of interrogating taboos. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordinations, such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, no pressure. I know what we've already said today in the pod, but no pressure, nothing. And would like a couple of fun little perks. I have revamped the Patreon last week before I knew any of this, just to be more accurate and have the better expectation management. But you can support us at patreon.com slash waystonepod. If you'd like art from us, me, if you would like more podcasts from us, we are going to record the sixth one of the bonus pods about the Sandman soon. Will's halfway through it. I'm going to reread it. We're going to get this out on the spring equinox. Yeah. Yay. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. to let the ADEM speak for themselves, so to speak. I said speak a lot.